Hello, everyone. Happy holidays to you and welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with business executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is a regular monthly guest, part of our digital all-stars, Tony Uphoff. And I would say Tony is both a business executive and a thought leader. Tony, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. Hey, Bob, always great to see you. Thanks so much. Yeah, Tony, um, it is a, a wonderful time of year here. I think from some of the thoughts that you sent over that you wanted to touch on today, I mean, they're recurrent throughout the year, but they seem to be, you know, some, some big picture views you wanted to get into here. And one of them that I thought was fascinating, right, is uh, please just be sure to touch a little bit on, you know, what you're doing here. You're CEO of Thomas and your Thomas Net that connects uh, buyers and sellers in industrial markets with extraordinary levels of data. But you're, you've got some thoughts here about corporate entrepreneurship. So uh, big companies, mid-sized companies, small companies jumping into this. What, what are you thinking about with that these days? Yeah, it's interesting, Bob. I and mean, you and I have shared a recent experience um, at Carnegie Mellon uh, University where there was a, a corporate startup, uh, you know, corporate leadership, entrepreneurship event. And, and it really, to me, it... it um, it, it, it reflected several things. So one of the main takeaways I had from it that, that I, I think you and I continue to talk about is if you think about, you know, uh, medium to large corporations, they've been on this journey across every industry. And let's call the journey digital transformation. And while it's become a cliche, it's a very real thing. And, and by the way, that's a horizon goal or an ongoing process. It's not an end state. And so, you know, we, we, we march along and you know, companies are at, at greater or lesser, you know, stages of that process. What, what hits me and, and our mutual friend, Sean Amarati, uh, who's also a regular on the podcast, I think has a great way of thinking about this, that at some point, digital transformation should start to enable business model transformation. And as we started to throw around examples of Disney Plus, and I'll, I'll come back to that one in an example, but we've, we, we've explored that on your program, or certainly Sean has before. What hit me about it was not the fact that Disney was able to exploit technology and streaming and suddenly build what appears to be overnight a, a $20 million or 20 million subscriber base and all, this, uh, all the crazy stats that we know to be true. What hit me was they've been at this for a while. You know, Michael Eisner was talking about, right, two CEOs ago, Michael Eisner was yeah. talking about digital transformation. They've swung and missed quite a bit. They've spent tons of money on digital initiatives that didn't pan out through either acquisition or, you know, startup. And then some tipping point was hit here where now they could actually step into something that leveraged their unfair competitive advantage, as our, our friend Sean would say. And they are now starting to accelerate in a digital arena in a way that I would argue maybe some of their competitors didn't even begin to think about and, and sort of thought, ah, we'll leave theme parks and box office to them. We'll handle the streaming and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think it's a fantastic example. And it, it's got me thinking a lot because I see it in our part of the marketplace. You know, we see a lot of I'll use the term traditional manufacturing companies that, you know, they've been at this digital transformation across their factory floor for a while. They're starting to now look at the digital transformation of their supply chain. 
sales and marketing, and you're starting to now see some really innovative things. And I could argue there's some new business models emerging, some new partnerships, some new growth that's emerging. And, and I guess I look at this as a framework, Bob, to think there, there may be life in the old model yet for some of these companies, uh, but all kidding aside, I, I'm wondering if there's an inflection point that many of these companies are hitting in terms of just staying at it day after day after day, and they've hit some sort of a milestone or metric here where all of a sudden now it doesn't feel odd to think of a new digital business model or, or a companion business model or, or an incremental business. Um, and, and we, you know, I'll give you a, a fascinating example. Um, it, uh, many analysts, not all, but many stock analysts are putting General Electric back on a buy list. Now, you know, it was not that many years ago that General Electric was running television ads that they were a software company and trying to recruit developers and people thought, wow, look at this modern company. And then the whip came down, they changed out CEOs, they had to kind of retrench their model, but what didn't go away is all those investments and time and energy that they made in digital transformation. And I'm not suggesting therefore GE is making this dramatic now new business model shift. But I think a lot of what we're starting to see come out of GE is a reflection that they have put that time and energy into. And, and I think there are other examples we could find. We see it in, Bob, so many small to medium to large size manufacturing companies where these light bulbs are going off. And so, um, long way of saying, I think this idea of corporate entrepreneurship may very well be something that we see sweeping across a, a renaissance of it, by the way, in a range of industries. Tony, that's a fascinating perspective. And I think, you know, one of the issues you raised there is it, it comes about a little bit right to uh, a point of view and not just from the top executives in the company, but throughout. Can companies get out of this notion, right, of saying of this mindset that I don't know, sometimes popular media jumps on this, like the old guys or what they call legacy companies, you know, they're done, their history, they can't move as fast. And if, if those big companies allow the game to be played on a field where only short term speed and startup and digital stuff is the only currency, yeah, then they're going to lose. But what is some of these larger companies start to think about, I have relationships, you know, with the biggest companies in my industry in the world. I have trust with them. They've invested in me over time. I've got R&D facilities. I've got global, you know, so on like that. It's almost like the, the power of incumbency is something those big companies have to fully embrace along with this notion, as you've described it, Tony, of coming up into the modern world building on the experiments that have been made over the last five, seven, 10 years or so, and never losing sight of this. It's not a special project. It's part of how they operate. And the companies that can blend those two together, they are going to be that, you know, hog on ice that, uh, you know, once it starts moving, you just try to stop it. Well, and, and isn't it funny that we're sitting here thinking, man, it almost looks like we're seeing elephants start to dance. I mean, this is really a remarkable thing in my mind. And I think you phrase it really well, Bob, where I think what happens is during periods of disruption, which boy, it feels like an ongoing phenomenon today versus you know periods, but if you actually look at them, they tend to go in cycles where there's a disruptive series of technologies that come up and then it kind of flattens out for a little while and then we have another one, right? You know, We're going through a series of step changes, certainly in the industrial markets today around industry 4.0 with 
you know, digital technology converging with, you know, traditional industrial products and services. But I think you, you touch on something that's incredibly powerful, which is it's not either or, it's the additive nature of that. And I think that's the key here, because if I let go of some of my biggest strengths, which under the harsh glare of a fast moving startup might appear to be weaknesses, but if I give up on those and then I try to emulate the startup, I, I, you know, it, it's a bit of a fool's mission in retrospect, but we all get seduced by this. The other thing to bear in mind is you were talking about, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the benefits that, you know, if you flip around legacy, legacy, we, we think of sometimes as a bad word. Legacy is not necessarily a bad word. If legacy means you put your head in the sand and you don't pay attention to disruptions, then it's a horrible thing. But I think if there's a legacy that's a deep and profound connection with customers, a long historic track record of dealing with the complexities of technical adoption and serving customers and those types of things, those are, those are attributes that are really, really powerful and, and I think could be uh, beneficial. The one other thing I would note here, Bob, and you and I have talked about this before, and I'll use streaming as a, as a great example. Um, what's not completely clear yet is if you take a company like Netflix, I, I don't know what the current metrics are, but it's something like I spend $1.50 to generate a dollar, right? So this is the equivalent of I feed that money into a vending machine and then I get a customer that comes out. But it, you know, if I stop feeding money into the vending machine, the customer stops, right? Or not, we don't know yet, right? You look at Uber, you look at, you know, there's a lot of these types of models out there. You start to look at some of these legacy companies that have got experience and have got relationships. And now that they appear, some of them, not all, are on the right side of harnessing the power of some of this technology to their existing business models and then ancillary incremental services and products on top of that. We may be seeing kind of an interesting, um, I wouldn't call it a shift, Bob, but I would say I think we might actually be seeing an interesting era um, in, um, in the way some of these corporations can compete. Yeah, yeah, and Tony, I wonder if it's almost like they're, they found a new gear that they can get into yeah. if they put some of these things together. And I, I'm gonna go back uh, a little bit of ancient history here, but whether it's 12 or 15 years ago, but it's somewhere in that range. But I had a chance to go down to visit the Dell manufacturing plant just outside Austin. Yeah, and we were standing sort of up above this floor. I don't know how many football fields the whole <laughs> giant uh, assembly place took up, but it was massive. And one of our, our hosts from Dell said, you know, on that big bay door over there, it seemed like it was about a half a mile away. That's where the parts come in. And then that one over there is where the finished products go out. And we don't know what we're going to be making till that morning when the orders come in. And I said, wow, you must have a fantastic... Uh, inventory control machine and all that to get all this here just in time before it comes through. And the guy looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, uh, no, I said, we don't own the stuff until it passes through that door. He said, somebody else carries all that. As soon as it passes through, the ownership switches over to us and then it goes out this way. That was 12 or 15 years ago. And it just required a company like that to think in a completely different way, change yeah. those models. And they're not um, being unfair about that. What they're saying is, I'm not going to be able to compete if I take the old model into this new era. So I'm going to find suppliers who are willing 
to hook up in this new model with me and do things Absolutely. in a different way. And yeah. again, that sense, your point here about the corporate entrepreneurship, thinking like the startup, thinking in different ways, thinking what's the best outcome, not necessarily how do we replicate the things we've been doing forever and just make them a little more efficient, even if that's eventually going to kill us. Well, and I think, Bob, one of the, the things, if you go back and study these, and I think Dell is a textbook example, how many times has Dell gone through reinvention and went private and, you know, all the different things that they continue to do to stay current and relevant and acquisitions and new product launches. Um, I think where you see oftentimes companies lose the beat is they, they, they see the opportunity in these new technologies. I mean, people forget, you know, Park. Palo Alto Research Center was started by Xerox, for God's sake, right? So arguably Xerox invented the GUI as we know it, the mouse yeah. as we know it. You know, I, I can't remember if Ethernet was a part of that original park. They didn't monetize any of these other than laser printers. And so, you know, history teaches us over and over and over and over again, right? That, you know, it's not about not understanding the new technology, but it's about how do you put it in an arena in the company that it can be best, you know, leveraged. And I think what... Dell and other companies realize is you have to be really careful about going to somebody managing a legacy process and saying, I got a new product I'm going to hand you because they're likely not, that's an, that's an organizational architect uh, challenge. It's not necessarily a lack of understanding of the technology. And I think sometimes as outsiders looking in, we go, oh, IBM didn't understand the PC. No, no, no. IBM understood the PC quite well. Actually made a pretty damn good PC. They didn't necessarily set up the right organizational architecture to be able to exploit the benefit for their particular company. And I think what's also happening is companies are getting smarter about understanding how to manage this, right? If that makes sense. Because I think there's some, there's some people and process issues here that are equally important to the technology. It's not just oh my God, we found this magical digital transformative technology and that therefore is going to unlock all these business models. That's not the hard part. The hard part is, in my opinion, is actually getting the organizational structure and the engagement in and around those things operating the right way. I think that's the trick. Yeah, and Tony, so let me ask you with that, because I think you've raised that, that, uh, that intersection there very nicely. At a time when we have more data coming in, capturing it, analyzing it, looking at it, evaluating it than we ever have before. At the same time, there's also, because of the pace at which things are changing, the pace at which customer desires and expectations are changing, whether that's consumer or business, everybody's gotta be able to uh, become more comfortable with a, a little bit of ambiguity. Uh, yeah. So you've got all this yeah. data come in, but if you try to sit and wait, right, and freeze it till you get perfect data, you know, all risk removed from it, you're never going to take any action. And the world just doesn't allow for that type of, you know, uh, easygoing pace anymore. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're spot on, Bob, on that. And I don't know what the number is, right? I will say as I go out and about and talk to manufacturing companies about the pace of change, about digital transformation, about changing customer needs, how they're looking at the world, um, I, I was with one of our customers, a company called Rodon, and they were launching a, a fascinating new product um, uh, that's called SealDry. And it's kind of what it sounds like. It's for commercial building where historically, if you're putting windows, either retrofitting or building a new building, 
there, there's a fairly complicated thing of, you know, making sure they can stay dry and, you know, caulking them off and it's fairly costly. Well, they actually built a modular rubber unit that goes into that application and fits in cleanly and easily and you're off to the races. It was a really brilliant move on their part. When I was talking to the CEO of the company about, gee, how did you, you know, understand that the market was ready for this? I can't remember the percentage, Bob, and I'm going to slightly, you know, screw this up. But I want to say he said something like, yeah, I'm about 60% that, that we're right. You know, and, and, and the, the part that he, he believed that he had right were the dimensions and the actual job to be done of putting one of these in a commercial, you know, building. What he didn't really know is, would they eat the dog food? You know, is this, we, we, we think we've, you know, solved the challenge and, and it, it looks like it's taking off. But I, I use that as, as an example, as I go out and, and talk to a lot of our customers or industry leaders, when this topic comes up, especially if we're not being recorded or it's not for, uh, it's not on a panel or something, most business leaders say, hey, you've got to be comfortable today with incomplete data or perhaps I have the complete data. I don't have the complete pattern of what the data is suggesting, right? I, I don't, you know, I, I've got it over 50%, right? But I, I, man, I've still, there's a lot more analysis I could do on the data, but directionally it's, it's guiding me in a direction that, that I believe is the right direction for us to go. Yeah, Tony, you know, that, uh, that, that brings to mind, you know, if, the, if you can get to 60%, 70, 75%, that's pretty healthy, but I think it's also informed, right? Isn't it, uh, would you say by the, somebody's level of exposure, if a decision maker, if he or she is spending all of his or her time inside the four walls of the company, in a way that's okay. But when you try to fill in that somewhat unknown or slightly unknown, 25, 30%, you darn well better have an outside in perspective that gives you that best sense of, is this going to be the calamitous 30% that I don't know? Or is this something that we can correct on the way? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting, you and I've touched on this before, Bob, it, it, you know, this is not a new playbook, but it's been new for our company over the last three years, we, we formally implemented uh, the, the, the Harvard strategy of jobs to be done as a research methodology and a formalized process. And one of the things that I found fascinating, it relates to exactly to what you're talking about, is by definition, it's a qualitative. You know, we, we did, you know, one of the most exhaustive jobs to be done analysis of the industrial buying process, but it was still 500, you know, 90 minute interviews. It would be, it would be almost physically impossible to do it at, at whatever scale in the tens of thousands, let's say, as, you, as much as you would like to. Um, however, what it did, Bob, is it helped us with that incremental. So when we started combining the insights of the, the jobs to be done of our user set with the data we could see coming through the platform, suddenly now we thought, oh, you know what, the, the qualitative analysis here is helping us put the data into perspective we can see the pattern a little bit better. The other thing that it challenged, and, and I think this is, uh, it sure challenged me, is I'd like to believe as a business executive that I, uh, more times than not, and let's say upwards of 90% of the time, I make rational decisions based on the data. Yeah. Uh, probably not in front of me, but perhaps when I'm not in the room, it's probably observed that I oftentimes use data to rationalize the decisions that I made. Uh, and, and so I think 
the point I'm making is I, I see this all the time too in our industry, in, in the manufacturing industry, because there's a lot of perception reality and a lot of different things that are going on. As data is becoming more user-friendly, more ubiquitous, more that we can, we can start to make decisions based on it, I, I still see a tremendous amount of people making the same decision and simply using data to rationalize it or to rationalize their cognitive bias or experiential bias or worse yet, sunk cost bias, as opposed to really using it to, hey, what is the, is there something changing in my prospective customer or with my current customer and what are those jobs to be done? So it, it's fascinating. I think, I think it'll be amazing to watch the impact of, of this era of data on business with hindsight. Yes. you know, a decade from now and to really see how far we, we get with it. Because I think we're still like kids with a hot rod, you know, to a certain extent with, with a lot of these data and, and analytic tools. And I think sometimes we're, we're really using the data appropriately. Other times I think we're using it to rationalize what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I, Tony, I love that. And I, I would just ask, you know, your thoughts on one other point here. I think in, you know, the things we've talked about here, the, the changing level of desires and expectations of customers, the need for these truly data-driven organizations and insights, uh, that sense of being able to operate with some ambiguity, the rational types of decision-making, if those are your objectives, but you take to that initiative or you take to that new undertaking, that old-fashioned organizational model you talked about where there are departments and silos where yeah. you cannot avoid people seeing incomplete parts of the picture. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible handicap you're putting around yourself. And those walls have to come down so that end-to-end -end visibility, everybody understands what the customer's doing, why operations has to do this, why engineering's doing that, why the service team is, you know, requesting some different ways of, of engaging. So, CEO of Thomas, you, you know, working with a lot of these companies, do you have a sense of how well-equipped companies, you know, your, your sense today, where are they? Are, are, are they getting this? Are they getting the new type of organization along <laughs> with all this new data-driven, data-accelerated model? Um, I, I would say, it, it, broadly speaking, and I'm generalizing certainly, but broadly speaking in the manufacturing arena, I'd say it's early days in that regard. I don't think data is a new thing. I think they've had data before, but it's data around, um, you know, 99% uh, the, the product was manufactured the right way, you know, uh, system downtime, you know, those types of data analytics. Now suddenly getting data on trends, data on customer behavior, data on customer adoption, I think is somewhat new, um, at least in, in an operational sense. I think the other thing, and you and I have touched on this before in our conversations, I, I use this, this phrase about, you know, uh, from interest to invoice and, and having a, a connected, you know, view of that. Um, a lot of our customers have a very clear view, as most, you know, businesses do, between the quote that they give out to an invoice, but really understanding what went before that. And I mention it because what we've found certainly in our own company is we went through that metamorphosis, but I've seen it in other companies, is that tends to help break those silos down. So initially what happens is you start on this journey, people get very protective because they think, oh, I see what they're doing. They're gonna replace me or they're gonna, they're gonna you know, this whole collaboration is a gambit to, you know, so-and-so is gonna take or that, that other division is gonna take our project or, or whatever the heck that it, um, you know, that it might be. Um, 
But the reality is when you start connecting these systems, we saw it at a, at a, you know, a, at a microcosm here inside of our company, but I see it, Bob, in a lot of our, uh, our customer uh, companies, but also other uh, companies that I, uh, I work with. So Tony, along with that, you know, some great discussion here from you about what goes on sort of inside. Now, then how communi companies are communicating outwardly? What is this new sense of value? And I, we had talked about it a little bit recently. Um, I had worked at Oracle for four and a half years, have great respect for the company, a lot of the people there, but there is still a little bit of the uh, old guard approach of saying, if I just go out and bash my competitors, that'll freeze the market and allow me a little extra time to get some of my newer products out there into the market. And I, I had just said, I think that that's just the wrong way of going about things today, especially in the tech business where some of these companies have really, really done a good job of becoming truly customer driven in their aspirations and especially in how they articulate their value to the world. So uh, I know this is something you've studied closely you know throughout your career and at thomas what do you think about this whole thing of a new type of narrative coming up i think it's a big deal bob and i think it's it's a bigger deal um than than most people are are um are realizing at this stage and i'll, I'll give you a real simple example and if you don't mind i'll use the, the example of the company you just brought up you know my my day-to-day -day engagement with oracle was really back in the 90s it, you know when i was coming of age in the publishing industry and they you know just like they are today they were a you know large powerful company back then they could dictate the narrative and the narratives about the speed of the database and my database is faster than your database and because this was not new technology but at an enterprise level we were adopting these technologies quite quickly that was, a, that was a narrative that was worth, you know, uh, uh, positioning around. And it was also something that customers to a greater or lesser extent paid attention to. And then we started to see the market move a little bit around, hey, I'm, I'm using this technology towards a business use case. And so I, I think back then, Oracle kind of got the idea of how to go in and focus on a business use case. But I don't know if it was ever really culturally ingrained in how the company operated. Jump forward to today. And you've got a lot of very nimble, agile companies that I would argue, Bob, were built from the ground up based on current jobs to be done from these customers. And I think what ends up happening is in the narrative, you know, we're in an era where, as you and I were talking a few minutes ago, we're talking about making decisions on incomplete data. We're talking about transparency in these things. I guarantee you, as, as various people watch this, they're gonna nod their heads because that's the world they live in too. So to openly pretend that you're you know, focused on something that's not actually true makes you look like the old guy screaming, get off my lawn in an era where I think, you know, not just millennials, we all yearn for a bit more authentic authenticity and transparency. But more importantly, I think is the thing you're focusing on, which is, hey, enough about you. How about me? I'm the customer. You know, you, I want to see you understand my jobs to be done, and I want to see you communicate with me that you you really do understand those things, because that's what I'm buying is your ability to help me with the jobs that I need to get done, not the fact that you're bigger or smarter or better than your your competitors. But look, old habits die hard. These incumbents like Oracle are not going to go away. I'm not saying that, but. I, Boy, I, I think they're gonna. I think the the lyrics of the narrative have changed, 
and I think they're singing an old songbook that doesn't resonate with customers anymore. Yeah, yeah, Tony, in there, uh, it's the, there was a sort of a bond, or was it a, almost like a, a very close-knit community for a long time, right? Oracle made intensely, and, and many of these other tech companies as well, they made intensely technical products, they sold them to an intensely technical audience using intensely technical language. It was product out and it went that way. And it's just wildly different today. You're involved, right? And a lot of the technology buying decisions there for your company and the leaders that you speak to from industrial markets more and more so that way. So it, it, it is funny. And uh, I think it's good lesson for everybody in every sort of industry to sit back and say this, am I thinking about this from the inside out view? Am I seeing it from the outside in? And that influences everything from how companies present ourselves to the outside world to how we structure ourselves internally, how we're able to close that gap of that last 25, 20% of ambiguity. Is it with you know, hunches from inside the company or is it from customer-driven expectations and aspirations on the outside? Well, and I do think that, um, that if there's a gap between, let, let me call it marketing, your, you know, and, and, and the narrative of marketing and your customer promise, which should be implicit in your marketing, but is, could manifest itself in your sales, um, to the brand experience, you know, Regis McKenna used to call it the total experience there when I actually use your product and service. Because of our understanding today and our access to information, boy, if those aren't in relative orbit with each other, we're going to know it really quickly, even if we don't intellectually go, oh, it's the gap in those things that I just described. It's just in that experience. You know, we all have this all the time. And, you know, we can draw examples out of airlines or things that are a part of our daily lives. But if you're in an arena as a customer and you realize this company doesn't understand me, they do not understand me, right? You know, that I think technology is not immune to that problem. And I think particularly as enterprise technology has become more personal, you know, we all use it in so many different, I think of, you know, products like Slack or even some of the, you know, ERP products or, you know, these are things where personal information's in there, complex company information. I live and die by my access to these systems. They become very personal in the way that I use them. I'm not saying I put my personal data in there, but my use of it becomes, um, uh, personal to me because it, it's it's my profession, and so I think sometimes understanding you know the the personal experience that a lot of these business users are having is is has to be a part of the equation here. Yeah, and Tony, before we wrap, I want to ask you just give us a little teaser on some thoughts you have about leadership uh, coming up here, and we can talk more about that next time. But I first wanted to give you an example. I think this is a classic to me of you know as you said a couple minutes ago about the custom like hey. I'm the one paying the money here. Could, you know, you get a little bit of this. Uh, my one cousin, Tom, he's a real rascal, great guy, had a, a, a good career at J.P. Morgan Chase. But uh, Tom's one of those people who can, you know, talk constantly. Everybody laughs, talk so much about himself all the time. But every once in a while, like on the golf course, he'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I've been talking about myself too much. He said, let's talk about you. What do you think about my swing? Right. So, I love it. It is. Uh, it, it's. It's not as easy as it sounds, right? To get that outside-in view, and I think that's tied up somewhat in your uh, developing thoughts here about leadership. So, give us a little yeah. teaser where you're at on that. 
you know, Bob, I, I, I've just been watching our journey, but also the, the, the industry that we serve. And, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll start with this digital transformation, but also the use of data. And I think what's starting to happen more and more and more is I'm seeing a lot of companies, clearly it's happening at Thomas, that as, data, as we get more facile with data, as we understand where to push the data to best benefit, to enable people, it's, it's forcing us, and I'm watching this in the industry we serve, to rethink what management is. So, you know, at the end of the day, what is managing? If, if I'm doing the right job of, of architecting the organization the right way, and I'm pushing the data down to proximity of the people that can act on it on behalf of customers and to the best benefit of the business, that the whole concept of managing starts to change. Now, this isn't a new idea, but I'm wondering, Bob, not unlike the first topic we got into, it, are we hitting some tipping point? Because I, I watch it happening here where, you know, we're developing scorecards and other things where we're pushing the data. We've created uh, all kinds of dashboards where we've had the data, but it's about where we're, where we're giving access to the data and enabling things and really fun things are starting to happen. I watch this happening in our customers where you know, people on the factory floor are looking at real-time data to be able to make decisions. They're looking at customer orders, customer needs. They're sharing this. You can go into some of these factories and there'll be, you know, all, you know how, many, how many orders are shipping, where they're being shipped, all kinds of data and information where you walk around and everybody's on, on message, if you will. Everybody knows what's going on. And so, you know, for another time for us, but I begin to really think more deeply or as deeply as I ever think uh, around this idea of where does this go and what happens over time in how we train leaders today? Because, you know, we've said for years the cliche of we don't need managers, we need leaders. And that was kind of this comment that people would make, but we didn't really unpack it or really understand what it means. And if indeed we have data and systems that help quote unquote manage or guide, then what is it that we want leaders to do? And is it um, becoming more facile at making decisions based on 60 to 70% of the data? Is it understanding more profoundly the jobs to be done by customers and what does that mean and how do you implement those processes? Is it, is it more around understanding how to organize um, innovation uh, in ways that won't disrupt a core business. Now, these are all obvious things that leaders do, but I, I guess where I'm going is, will this start to create a different need in the way we think about um, not just training, perhaps even who and what skill sets we want out of, out of leaders of, uh, of businesses? And I'm thinking most acutely around the manufacturing industry, but I, I think the, this could be applied in other areas. Yeah, Tonin, as uh, machine learning continues, you know, it's extraordinary impact, you know, inside there as well. Uh, I, as you were describing that, people on the on the, the shop floor, the things they're doing, the data they're seeing, the their awareness of, you know, what's happening all around them, sort of like on that end-to-end -end basis. And then you have sort of the old-fashioned um, guy, you know, walks in with a clipboard and says, hey, so Jenkins, you know, uh, uh, where do you stand on your quota? Are you meeting your numbers? And, you know, looking like guys just, you know, came out of the prehistoric uh, cave somewhere. So what, what well, time? You know, what, it, what, you know what, one of the things that's been bandied around is, you know, are, are the, the CEOs of tech companies of the future, future liberal arts majors? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, because, yeah. the, you know, and, and not, to, not to make a commentary about education, but just 
you know, is it, is it more about, I need to understand the job to be done for Bob Evans and understand how to organize around that than it is about, I understand uniquely how to engineer a component that goes into a carburetor that therefore goes into a car. And both are critically important. But I, I think a lot of what you and I are touching on is, um, is, is, is these are, you know, it's hard to describe these skills. And I'm gonna guess that some of this data is gonna lead us into areas where it's gonna reflect the need for, for new or different skills and or highlight the skills of people that perhaps haven't always been in leadership positions. So you're telling me that 40 years ago when I graduated with my liberal arts degree, I should have been the CEO of a tech company. I'm telling you that now. I'm telling you that now. There's still time, my friend. There is still time. Well, that is a great place to jump off, Tony. It's an optimistic, upbeat start. I thank you for that. And of course, you know, for the entire discussion today and in all of our Up Off on Industry discussions, really good stuff, Tony. Thanks a lot. Hey, Bob, thanks as usual for having us on and uh, look forward to talking again soon. All right, folks, and thanks to all of you for checking in here with Cloud Wars Live. We hope it was fun for you, and we look forward to seeing you next time. So long.